Well, welcome everyone back to Looking Over Life. This is one of those episodes that <laughs> I think is somewhat of an an explanation. I don't know of why it takes us so long to get out episodes or why uh, why we put out so few sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that um, that the listeners don't get to see and uh yeah we've been working on we have been working on james has been working on <laughs> this episode for over a year <laughs> in yeah a sense. i'm not sure exactly when i started but <clears throat> yeah i would say it's been something close to that <laughs> i think i ended up reading the better part of four or five books <laughs> for this I, I i didn't get get the whole way through a couple of the books but I got the I got mostly read about four or five books to prepare for this episode. Yeah, I I told James the other day that that it looks like he's working on his thesis statement for <laughs> university or something. Mm-hmm. That uh, if you look at the show notes, we have there are more more words in in the show notes than I usually speak in a an hour long sermon on Sunday. So if we only read everything that's in the outline we'd be here for a couple of hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, i'm not planning on reading everything from the outline but yeah uh, i kind of needed to go down through and, and write it all out this is definitely much more much more preparation much more spelled out than normal simply because of the, the subject matter and seemed like it was important and needed to be done well so that just took a bit more time and this episode is also a a testament that we we listen to our emails, we take them seriously, especially from our patrons, and we do something about it, even though it might take a really, really long time to get there. <laughs> so thanks for uh, sticking with us. One of our patrons, Jess, has been waiting on this episode for a long time, and I guess because she's been waiting so long, we're going to give her two episodes out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're we're deciding from the get go that this episode should be split into two different two different episodes, two different approaches. The first one, this one, is going to be more perhaps theoretical, more philosophical, mm-hmm. a bit deeper. Uh, famously, we're better at at <laughs> spitting out deeper uh, <laughs> or maybe high flown philosophical conversations and then we're going to force ourselves to have a a practical down-to-earth put it in shoe leather sort of episode that follows up on what we talked about today that's the idea and Mm -hmm. yeah these will probably both of them be a little bit on the longer side but the sort of topic that might be good to listen to in in uh, a few different sittings (laughs) sittings <laughs> i'll give you a chance to chew on it absorb it think about it and really hoping that we get some some feedback on this episode be interesting to hear other people's points of views we did get some uh, feedback on one of our recent episodes about uh oh what was the episode about or we talked about anyway in the episode, oh, I think it was one of our Q and A episodes where we talked about 
reading and how those who don't read are just as illiterate as those who can. And uh, the feedback was was good. It was uh, looking at how actually we'd be completely handicapped if we couldn't read uh, signs and and so on. It would be as if we, we were blind. But so that was a good perspective to have uh, added in. So we read your emails. We appreciate them, and it helps inform what we want to talk about or where we want to go with the podcast. Yeah, I think what you so I think what you meant to say is that if you don't read, you're as illiterate as if you can't read. Uh, you said it a little bit oh, differently yeah. than that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was some that was some good feedback. Um, those of us that are big into reading think that everybody needs to read at least. 50 to 150 books a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and obviously that's, I'm exaggerating a bit there, but I do think there is value. Just recently I saw in uh, our church periodical, there was an article talking about how Christians should read and it gave some reasons why that was. And so I think it's very important to be reading, not just the Bible, but reading other books as well that are very helpful. But um, mm-hmm. but we did probably overstate our point. Well, we did overstate our point a bit. So <laughs> yeah, using a bit of hyperbole there. Yeah. And I think the feedback said something about um, that the reading has more value than just sharpening the mind. Like it's more mm-hmm. practical, and and we can be grateful for that more practical daily use that we get out of it. Mm-hmm. Although I thought maybe by saying. Uh, just sharpening the mind might uh, might show a little bit that uh, where we were trying to come from is that there's more value to it than just like uh, this kind of theoretical uh, academic where where you're just doing something doing some extra polishing on the diamond that's already pretty well perfect <laughs> <laughs> and I think from uh, listening back to the episode my perspective or at least what i was trying to get across was that this idea that we're more ignorant than we realize and so it's not just about sharpening something it's already <laughs> kind of kind of doing pretty good or okay but uh trying to figure out what i don't know and mm-hmm. uh, realizing uh, what all i have to learn yet so yeah yeah but great feedback mm-hmm. yeah to me just adding on to that just a little bit to me i find that reading shows us areas in which we maybe fall short or areas which we don't know very much. And it can also give us perspectives from different cultures, different times that we can't get on our own if we're just in this particular time and place. And I I find that very, very helpful to to be more empathetic, to be more caring of others that are different than Mm -hmm. us. I find that particularly helpful. And, And that's also very helpful for a Christian to be more caring and more empathetic to those who who are in need, mm-hmm. following what Christ has has told us to do, and just as a as a segue, reading has really played a significant role in the forming of this episode. You already mentioned that, but mm-hmm. we're looking at science and religion, asking ourselves how they how they relate to each other do they or should they <laughs> um maybe maybe they're just uh completely in conflict and we need to uh separate them the same way we try to do church and state so we James and I both looked and couldn't find the original question f- 
from our patron, but the 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 premise that we were working off of was uh what is science's role in religion or vice versa and you know how should the christian relate to science mm-hmm. maybe on a maybe more on a daily basis but perhaps also look, thinking about it from an education standpoint uh so like i said this episode we're going to think more about uh some of the f- some of the facts and maybe some of the history and then consider some of the logic and uh, philosophy behind it before we get to the more practical later. So, James, I'm going to be playing the role of of journalist, interviewer. Okay. And uh, you put in a lot of effort into this episode. This is something you're passionate about. I think you have a great outline here for for a book that I hope you <laughs> eventually put, put out uh, that I would enjoy reading. But we're going to be giving you the floor a lot more of the time than than me. But to start off, give us a little bit of an introduction. What is the the common view maybe that we might hear in society mm-hmm. of the relationship between science and faith, science and religion? I think it was it was this this common view of science and religion and the relationship between them that I think that the patron was kind of speaking to so obviously i enjoy science obviously i'm also a very religious person and how do those things work you know how can you hold both of those things at the same time and i think Mm -hmm. some people say like how's that even possible Mm -hmm. and i I believe part of that is because the common view in, in society is that or the secular view is that the two are in conflict that science is based on observation, it's based on facts, while religion is based on blind faith, you might say, or mm-hmm. I, I think some of the less charitable um, atheists out there say that basically it's it's the same as believing in fairies. <laughs> right, yeah. And since that is a very common view, that does tend to affect us as as people of faith we maybe start to pick up on that or we we feel that that conflict in magazines we pick up um you know i've i've really enjoyed reading national geographic over the years and that is a book that's based on well there's a lot of history as well but there's also a lot of science and it seems like there's a conflict between what magazines such as national geographic have to say about the world and what we read in the Bible, what our what our preachers maybe say on a Sunday morning, and some of the books that maybe we read as well, and how do you deal with that conflict? What is going on there? Why is there this conflict? Mm-hmm. And th- there's so much conflict there that that there are some scientists that say basically you can't be a scientist and believe in God. That you mm-hmm. you have to make a choice. And then there's also others in the faith community who say. That science is dangerous. Science will lead you away from God, and for that reason, they they kind of um, hold it very carefully, or they it, it it's almost like it's a ticking time bomb that you have to be really careful about. Which mm-hmm. it's real, uh, which really saddens me because I do enjoy science so much, and I personally believe that it, it points to God. It doesn't lead us away from God, but even though I believe that there's this perception 
And I do think that there is a danger there in some ways, but we need to understand, and I, and I hope this episode can help us understand, that there is, in a sense, a conflict, but it's not the conflict we think that there is. Yeah. And <laughs> going back to that thought where you said about that, that common view is that those with, those with faith, those with religion are the same, on the same level as those who believe in fairies and unicorns. Mm-hmm. Isn't it also true that it's kind of, um, it, 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 the scientists in that, that, that are taking that view are saying, if you're educated, you're going to logically come to the conclusions that that we have drawn that there is no god mm-hmm. and so the flip side to that is that those who believe in religion are just simply ignorant mm-hmm. and the more ignorant you are the more you need a faith is that an accurate statement yeah yeah i would say so that sounds very accurate from you know there again it's it's not uh not all scientists say that but certainly there are some that do one that comes to mind is probably one of the more, I don't know what you want to call it, vehement um, mm-hmm. defenders of, of science and, and points out the conflict between science and religion is probably Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. He's probably, he's written a number of books. Um, the Selfish Gene, Gene is G-E-N-E, mm-hmm. not, uh, not the yeah. pants. <laughs> he's an evolutionary biologist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Not totally sure about that. Um, he also has the greatest show on earth that talks about talks about evolution, and then he also has another book that's fairly popular called the God Delusion. So he he points out some things there that he believes that religion is not just a delusion, but it's actually pernicious. It's actually damaging, and you you can you can very much tell that in what he has to say. So mm-hmm. so we're going to try to look at this uh, the these supposed uh, conflicts and see are they are they accurate now, now I had said I had asked you is that an accurate statement about the ignorant or more religious and the educated are are more uh, scientific and lead to a conclusion that there is no God I wasn't saying is that an accurate truth I was saying is it accurate that people state that yeah and mm-hmm. I think it's important that we realize that there is a very very loud minority in what we could call the science community who are are pushing a worldview and it's like James said uh, it, it does not take into account Christian scientists for example or mm-hmm. scientists in even other religions, and it's just that maybe <laughs> some of the Christians uh, aren't either as loud or as popular or as accepted today. So we're going to think about some of that. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the foundations, what we could call secular science? So we're starting to make a distinction already between uh, secular science, religious science, if we want to call it that, mm-hmm. um, that are affecting where we are today is this something uh, maybe what we want to get to the question that I want to get to James is has this been from ever since Adam and Eve that science and religion have been at war <laughs> don't try to answer that question right off the bat but that's where I want to head <laughs> yeah when I was thinking about this I was thinking well what is what are the foundational beliefs of science what what do a lot of scientists 
and you know we'll say secular when we say secular we would say ones that we're we're painting with fairly broad brush strokes like Sean said there are yep. scientists that are Christians and there are some scientists that maybe would be atheist or agnostic but they're not antagonistic toward religion they're like right. you do your thing I'll do mine mm-hmm. and so this is just saying in general these are the types of of things that that seem to be part of the science community um, mm-hmm. and the first one that came and so there's going to be a lot of isms here, so we'll try to make them interesting and explain what they are, because when you start talking about this ism and that ism, people start going to sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. But probably the first one that came out is is empiricism. And just read this from the dictionary. This um almost be easier than me trying to explain it. The theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience, stimulated by the rise of experimental science developed in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, What that basically means is that if we want to learn about something, we need to get out there, we need to touch it, we need to see it, we need to maybe taste it. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing that's kind of disturbing slash horrifying is some of the early chemists, as part of their chemical analysis, they would taste compounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the lifespan of chemists was not very long, usually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But they would they would get out there. They would actually they would do experiments. They would see what that's, for instance, Galileo. One of his famous experiments is he he dropped things from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa to to see how they how they fell under uh, the pull of gravity, how that affected how they fell. Mm -hmm. That is empiricism. We don't just sit there and think, well, I think that. If I drop something off of a off of a building, it'll probably fall down, probably not go up. Yeah, we we actually go there, we test it, we see how how fast does it fall? Does it does it fall faster as it falls down, or does it fall at the same speed the whole way? That's that's empiricism, and I would say this is a very very much a foundational idea for all scientists. It's not one that I would say. Only some scientists believe. Now, these other here, uh, these next couple beliefs, I would say there are some scientists that hold these ideas and there are some that do not. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, like I said, the scientific community tends to kind of accept some of these things. Um, and the next one, and this is a really big one, and we'll be, be coming back to this multiple times throughout the episode, is materialism. Mm-hmm. Now, materialism... It, the common definition as we think of materialism means somebody who their goal in life is to get stuff. Yeah. So to buy a bigger house, a nicer car, that is not this materialism. This materialism is the belief that the only thing that exists in the world are material or physical things. Right. Nothing supernatural. That's right. Yeah. And another term for this is naturalism, which I sometimes prefer simply because materialism does have this other definition that we that we kind of use commonly that sometimes can be confusing for people but you know I've I've given the listener the definition so we're going to just use materialism going forward mm-hmm. and the next one here um another belief is the belief in scientism and this is the belief that science is really the only way to truth. Yeah. Um, that if you want to really have objective truth, the only way to, to, to get that truth is through science. And it's very much related to materialism because 
if there was a spiritual world or there was spiritual realities, then science would not be able to to discover those. Mm-hmm. So, so scientism is very much built on materialism. And scientism also has a very positive view of science. It believes that eventually it can explain everything. Mm-hmm. That we can we can explain the way our brains work, what consciousness is, if we simply learn enough. Mm-hmm. That there is nothing that we can't learn without uh, by science, and th- it almost reminds me a little bit of the Tower of Babel, where the Bible says that there was nothing that they put their minds to that they couldn't do, and I think a large part because of that. Well, and they were also trying to make a name for themselves. Uh, God confused their languages, mm-hmm. which I had. I had a very clear example of this when I was down in Peru a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I had a hard time understanding some people. I was trying to order some food in the airport, and they had to get another cashier to come in and take my order because this gringo was completely <laughs> he couldn't understand anything he said. Yeah. So. So it's scientism. Real. Scientism, um, maybe it's easier to understand thinking about it, that how it's exclusionary. Mm. So famously, famously in academia, uh, scientism is is uh, kind of against like the humanities. You no, know, like mm. uh, things pertaining to language, to uh, creativity, art, music, poetry, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Like science says. You can't come to, you can't come to a sense of truth through poetry, for example. Like yeah. you're not mm-hmm. going to have some sort of revelation through poetry. It has to all come through the scientific method. Yeah, and I would say also that scientism is almost like, um, you could almost say it's almost like a religion. Not quite. I mean, the people that believe in scientism would not say that it's a religion, but yeah. <laughs> in a sense, it almost is. Like if if you if you read the definition, you know to believe that science is the only way to truth and that it can and that it can explain everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds a little bit like a religion, somewhat. But yeah. Anyway, so moving on to the next one here, and there's also a belief in reductionism, and this isn't quite as important of an idea, but I figured I would go ahead and mention it anyway. Um, reductionism is the belief that everything can be explained if we simply break it down into its parts and examine how they work. Uh huh. And kind of an example of this, uh, so obviously it's very simple. Like you have a machine and you have these bolts and nuts and springs and cylinders and different things. You put them all together and so reductionism is looking at those specific parts. So for instance, in chemistry, we look at atoms and molecules, very small parts. But those, the study of those very small parts can tell us a lot about how water works and the different qualities of water. And we'll probably talk about that in our next episode where we talk about some of the evidences for a creator. Mm-hmm. But but it also, there are some things that it's a little bit more difficult. So, for instance, they believe that we can explain consciousness if we understand how the brain works. Mm-hmm. We can understand how the brain works if we understand the chemistry in the brain. Yeah. The different different synapses and how they fire messages back and forth. And if we can, we can break that down into their pieces, eventually we can understand it. And we have learned a huge amount about that, but there's also some things that 
we have tried to figure out by breaking down to smaller parts, and it just has not happened. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that it won't happen at some point, but this this idea of reductionism is very much a part of of science. So, in the spirit of science, we're supposed to always be asking, right? That are are the questions that we <laughs> are the questions that we have even the right questions? Mm-hmm. Are, are we looking at this from the right? Point of view, do we have all of the information necessary? So, what about some of these other things? What about what about love? What about mm-hmm. uh, morality? Things that you know you can't you can't weigh or measure or or taste mm-hmm. or, or touch, like you were saying. Are those things uh, you might you might even be able to ask? Are those even real? Mm-hmm. Because science would kind of lean in that pure sense towards saying, especially from a science, scientism point of view, mm-hmm. that they're not even real or necessary. It might even be harmful. Yeah. And yeah, that that's where science, you know, science is a very powerful tool, but there are some things where it really does not work very well. I mean, like you said, love, beauty, morality, you know, if what can science tell us about those and I guess you could probably measure, uh, you, you could show people a picture and tell them, you know, sh- show a thousand people a picture and say, is this a beautiful picture? Mm-hmm. And let's say 75% say yes and 25% say no. Well, in a sense, by doing science, by, by getting this data, mm-hmm. we can tell, yes, this is a beautiful picture, but it still does not tell us why it is beautiful. Yeah, um, It's more just measuring whether we say it's beautiful or not. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that I would say give human experience the richness and fullness, like you said, beauty, love, and there's many other things as well, science really does not touch those. So, you know, we're already seeing here that there are more ways to view the world than simply through science. Now, back to the whole reductionism, they would say that love and beauty— those emotions or those things that we feel that they are just basically chemical signals in the brain. Yeah. <laughs> that that's, that's really mm-hmm. what it is. And that, that kind of goes back to reductionism thinking that you can explain everything if you break it down to its parts. Mm-hmm. And also scientism, the way that, you know, believing that we can understand and explain everything if we simply can, can use science to find it. So, so I would say that, we can see that there are more ways to view the world than simply science. Mm-hmm. But it is, like I've said, it is a very powerful tool to investigate the natural world, but it's not necessarily the only tool mm-hmm. because, yeah, you, you leave the uh, the whole field of the humanities is just totally left out in the, you know, left out in the cold. If we say science is the only way to truth and we really put so much emphasis on that. So science is a pursuit of truth, right? I mean, at least, at least uh in 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 theory yeah well there's actually there's actually some debate about that a little bit but mm-hmm. yeah i would say that science is we're trying to in a sense figure out as best as we can tell what is true about a particular thing mhm i would say yeah that's, i think that's accurate and so in that sense or from that perspective the the scientist is is assuming a a position of ignorance maybe mm-hmm. or because 
a scientist can't assume something to be true. It has to be proven. Mm-hmm. And I think all scientists would would agree with that idea that you, you can't come at a problem, whether it's solving cancer or uh, uh, solving, I mean, curing, or um, figuring out the origin of the universe. <laughs> you can't come out that with uh, with presuppositions, otherwise it will cloud your, your process and you uh-huh. may not be able to come to the correct conclusion. But my question is, is that what scientists do? Do they are they able to to cut out their presuppositions, cut out the mm-hmm. way they were raised, cut out uh, who they who they follow, for example, who they're a disciple of, mm-hmm. <laughs> or or do they maybe perhaps have a worldview or a presupposition that is leading them to a given conclusion? Well. The short answer is is yes, those things do affect scientists. Um, there is this view of a scientist as this, yeah, this is objective. By objective, I mean someone who is looking at things without any bias. Right. So with, you know, a purely objective, like this is a one mm-hmm. um, and there's no other, you know, I can tell that this is a one. I'm not being being influenced to say that it's anything other than a one. Mm-hmm. Or a two or a three. That mm-hmm. is, that's that's being objective. Yeah, there's this view of of that scientists are objective, that they're not influenced by bias and and previous views, and that is simply not true. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason is it's it's not that it's not that all scientists are just flawed, biased humans. Well, I mean, I would say in a sense we you know all scientists are, but yeah. it's more that you can't really interpret interpret. So with science, what you do is you go out, you make measurements, you do experiments, you make measurements, mm-hmm. and then you have to then look at those measurements and you have to start thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, uh, Galileo dropping, dropping, um, you know these these iron iron cannonballs mm-hmm. off of the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. He makes measurements and then he has to start thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, what does this tell me about the force of gravity. Now he would not have called it gravity, I don't believe, because it was wasn't until Newton, I think, that maybe some of those things were more figured out. But but you have to you have to have a foundational a foundation of belief mm-hmm. or a background to be able to interpret things. In other words, if you could take a baby and put it in a windowless box and just give it its food and then bring it out into the world and tell it to solve a math problem or tell it to observe the movement of the sun across the sky during the day, mm-hmm. it, would, it would, ha- would really struggle to know what's going on. It has to have some sort of mm-hmm. beliefs or um, worldview mm-hmm. that it could then base those observations in. And, you know, we, we're, all, we're all affected by our prior beliefs, experience, and our worldview. Um, scientists are no different than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. It's part of the human condition, you could say, maybe. But there are some areas in science where I think it's less important or it's where we can be less influenced by our previous experience. So, for instance, in physics, physics has a lot of math. And when it comes, I think math is probably the closest thing there is to something that's purely 
objective. It's uh-huh. that's purely truth in a sense. That math is the same, no matter who you are. Uh, the problem's going to work out the same. So, but then you look at an example of interpreting the fossil record. So you 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 go down through these layers of rock and you see fossils in different layers. Well, what what do you determine from that? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like the further down you go, there are simpler creatures, creatures that aren't as complicated. What do you do with that information? Well, mm-hmm. there are some people that believe that indicates that that there was simple life and that life evolved over millions and billions of years to the complex life we see around us now. Mm-hmm. There are other people that come to a very different conclusion. They're, you know, they can maybe both be completely, they can both be completely genuine in mm-hmm. their search for truth, but because of their previous worldview, they will come to completely different conclusions right. about what the fossil record tells us. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully I made sense there. Yeah, so my my earlier question was this this view then that there is a conflict between science and religion. I'm curious, is that something that's hmm, real? <laughs> or is it actually something that's subjective mm-hmm. and how long how long has it been going on forever or is this something of a a question of of worldview and another question that i want to aim toward is this concept of of theory uh versus fact or, or theory versus absolute truth mm-hmm. and maybe how what I what I've seen is it has there been maybe a difference in the way that theory's been handled, where it's almost <laughs> being uh, forced to be a fact when when it's still only a theory, and we can get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But what about this his, the historical background of the conflict? Yeah, well, there are different examples that are often that are often shown as well. This is an example of why there is a conflict between science and religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a clear. Uh, you know, this story tells us there's been this conflict that religion is is diametrically opposed to science for these reasons. And probably one of the most famous is Galileo and the church. So Galileo Galilei in the, boy, I should know these numbers. I'm thinking it's late 1500s, early 1600s, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. He he started espousing the idea that it actually came from um, from Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus before him, if I'm not mistaken, that the earth went around the sun and not vice versa. Yeah. And at this point, there was this common belief that that the uh, that everything went around the earth. Mm-hmm. And the story that you often hear is that, you know, because he was he was espousing this idea, um, the church basically persecuted him and he was put on trial by the Inquisition found guilty and yeah um punished for his his belief and i think there's a story that even there were some of the theologians that refused to look through his telescope okay at for instance like the moons of jupiter which would have which would have disproven some of the ideas that everything went around the earth mm-hmm. they just refused to even look at it and so it's this thing of you know religion bad um mm-hmm. oh which of course now we we do believe Although just the other day I found out that there are some people that still believe that 
that the sun goes around the earth and not the other way. But we now very clearly believe that the earth goes around the sun, mm-hmm. and uh, which is oftentimes called the heliocentric view. So, so we know that that's the truth. I mean, science tells us that is true. Mm-hmm. Well, Galileo is portrayed as this man who was ahead of his time and was trying to show the truth, and the church simply would not listen to it. They kind of, almost like they put their fingers in their ears and went, nah, 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 you know, I'm not listening. Um, And then they punished him. Well, the truth is a bit more complicated in Mm -hmm. a sense. Some of the things are true. I think that there were some people that probably did not want to look through his telescope. There were people that he was, in a sense, punished, although he wasn't, wasn't like he was tortured. I think he was put under house arrest for the rest of his life, which was probably mm-hmm. a fairly cushy life in some ways yeah. <laughs> for that time period. So, yeah. But if you read the story, Galileo was not the most kind person. He was mm-hmm. a little bit vindictive sometimes, and he wrote mm-hmm. a story, or it's, it's it's somewhat of a story, where he's talking about the heliocentric versus the geocentric view of the solar system. And mm-hmm. he he takes his view that the Earth goes around the sun and has this really smart person in this story uh, espousing this view. And then he takes some of the arguments from the from the uh, the then current Pope and puts that in the mouth of this uh, character called Simplicio, mm-hmm. who is this complete fool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you can imagine, the Pope was not very happy. <laughs> yeah. So if you make fun of people that are in power... It it doesn't mean it's okay for them to get back at you, but it certainly makes it more understandable why they would not be very happy with some of the things you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so that was a very big part of why they pushed back against Galileo so much was because he was he was making fun of the pope. Yeah. I mean, if you would make fun of the president and you could imagine that people that like the president would probably would probably be coming after you. Um, And I think that that whole argument shows a little bit of the 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 ignorance of of those who espouse this view of, of science versus the church when it when when it comes to what is religion or what is the church because th- this conflict between Galileo mm-hmm. his antagonism towards the pope was probably could probably more accurately be described as a political a, a political difference or a political attack because the Pope in, at, at that time mm-hmm. and oftentimes uh, in history has been more of a political figure than a spiritual figure. And of course the Pope is only the head of one mm-hmm. uh, aspect of what is known as the Christian church throughout the world. Uh, obviously you and I don't pertain to the, the Roman Catholic church and so it doesn't really affect us. And so to, to take one conflict between one scientist and one religious leader mm-hmm. and conflate that to be this is the way all science and all religion interacts yeah. is yeah that's very much the truth another thing that is often not mentioned is what what galileo was really pushing back against so it this would have been not long after the renaissance or maybe even during the renaissance and the Renaissance was a time where they were they were they were taking these writings from Greek philosophers and scientists from you know uh, over a thousand years earlier for the most part, and we're we're kind of rediscovering those. And so, 
At this time, there were a lot of people that held to the view of Aristotelianism, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, that that mm-hmm. believed that everything was perfect and you had these, mm-hmm. these celestial spheres that kind of um, rotated around the earth and that's what held the different planets and the sun and the stars. I probably don't have all the details correct, but that's roughly what it was. Um, the beliefs of um, of an astronomer called Ptolemy. It it wasn't just the church that believed what we mm-hmm. now know is false. It was also most of the scientific community at that time believed that this was true. And so Galileo was not just going against what the church said, although mm-hmm. he was trying to kind of reinterpret some biblical passages, which people didn't really like him doing. But also he was pushing back against what the entire, well, not the right. entire, but most of the scientific community at that time believed. Whenever you have a certain a certain paradigm or a certain way of thinking about the world, it takes a lot to to change that, and so he was he was fighting against more than just uh, a bunch of blind theologians that didn't want to look through a telescope. He was fighting right. against a lot of other people as well, and yeah, and like you said, I really like what you said there that just because the Pope and a few other people from Roman Catholic Church push back against Galileo does not mean that there is this inherent conflict between science and religion. That was just in that particular time against Galileo. If it would have been, mm-hmm. if if somebody would have been talking about the exact same ideas as Galileo, but he would have done it in a much more kind uh, way rather than kind of poking his his finger in the eye of the Pope. There's at least a chance that his ideas would have gained a bit more traction. But as they were, they met with resistance, and that's kind of understandable. And it's also inaccurate to portray it as the church versus Galileo, the church versus science. When Galileo had a a theistic worldview that he was working from and using to to prove his views, is that not right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe, from what I understand, Galileo was religious, um, and I don't know that he ever became like an atheist or an agnostic from Mm -hmm. what I can tell, even through everything that happened, Mm -hmm. it seemed like he was still, he still believed in God now, you know, and, and we'll talk about maybe some other, other scientists that were Christians. They would not view God or would not live at all in a similar way to what you and I would. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, if, if somebody says they believe in God, I mean, who are we Mm -hmm. to necessarily disagree with that? So, so then, uh, we're we're uh, we're kind of talking about the history of this this view of of conflict between science and religion, and probably where it really started to come to a head, you might say, is in the middle of the 1800s, where Darwin came up with his idea of the theory of natural selection, being a being a way in which species could evolve or change into different forms. Now. Darwin was not the first person to come up with the idea of, of evolution, mm-hmm. of changing, of, of organisms changing into different forms. There were other people, I think maybe even some of the Greeks had this, uh, had this idea, but they never had a, had a possible mechanism or way that it would work. Like, okay, we, th- we maybe think that this is the case, but we don't know how it would actually work. Uh, Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, which I think you would like to go to sometime. I think you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is off the coast of Ecuador, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, it, it's, it's a long ways off the coast. It's a couple hundred miles or so. But mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of these different islands in the Galapagos Islands. 
it's in what archipelago i think it's called mm -hmm. these islands had different had very similar birds but the birds had different types of beaks so some had had longer thinner beaks some had shorter much more um, robust beaks and he believed that that had to do with their different diets like some would eat insects some would eat seeds if you're eating seeds, you need a much thicker, stronger beak to break the seeds open. And he believed that uh, his theory was that they started out with a single species of finch. And as they underwent different environmental pressures, different food sources, that their beaks changed to where to the point where they almost were like different species. Mm -hmm. And so he, he believed that this was this was an idea of natural selection, which we won't get into right now, but basically that the strongest would survive and pass on their characteristics to the next generation, and that would, over long enough periods of time, that could give us where species could change from one to the next, and you could have uh, much simpler organisms could eventually evolve into much more complex organisms and so forth. And it seems like this middle of the 1800s is really when Scientists and theologians uh, seem to become more at odds up to this time. It seemed like a lot of the time that they were, that a lot of scientists were professing believers, mm -hmm. and they they believe they were studying creation and they were they were giving glory to God through their studies. But this was kind of when this more secular atheistic type of worldview started to come in. And, you know, uh, it seems like, I don't know if this is necessarily the case, I have to do some more study, but it seems like it was it was the early to late 1800s is when things began to shift a bit more. I think the seeds were planted probably in the Enlightenment, which was the mid to late mm -hmm. 1700s, but this this time of the 1800s, those, those seeds began to bear fruit, and they were coming up with ideas that basically said, we can... We can uh, the world can can operate without God. We we have ways that that we can kind of, in a sense, get around God, and we don't need God for for nature to operate. And mm -hmm. uh, it seems like that's kind of where things started to begin. So you you mentioned something about that Darwin believed this to be true. This comes back to this word theory. So uh, at that time. This was considered, or uh, the the theory of evolution was was gaining traction and becoming more more popular. Whereas today, it's hardly uh -huh. presented that way. That it's a theory of evolution. It's more like uh, evolution has been proven. So I'm curious uh, where how what that how that plays uh -huh. into this idea of conflict, where what uh oh how could i how how could i say the question in a different way where where science moves from from accepting this as being a theory to where it it must be the uh the belief that all scientists hold yeah well one thing i want to address first is the the idea of what a theory is mm -hmm. and oftentimes the phrase that you've actually used earlier in the episode you said it's just a theory so a lot of times we use that word a little imprecisely. We say a theory and mm -hmm. what we mean, like I have a theory that the electricity is out because a tree fell across the power line up the road. Like we use it as if it's a wild guess. Exactly. Um, 
And yeah, in science, yeah. it's a theory is not a wild guess. Um, I would say it'd be more accurate to say a hypothesis. And even so, a hypothesis is not just a wild guess. It's an educated guess. Right. A theory right. is when you have when you have gotten enough evidence that it seems like this this is a way that can explain what we observe. So we observe mm-hmm. we observe different types of creatures all over the earth. Darwin observed these different animals and that they were similar, but they, that they must have maybe been must have been the same species in the past, and they had been changing slowly over time. We also observe different fossils in the fossil record, and so all these observations come together, and we say, "What can explain all these things that we see?" Mm-hmm. And you come up with a theory, and so a theory is basically a possible explanation for the things we see, except. Maybe a little bit stronger than that. Like I said, a possible explanation that still almost sounds like a hypothesis. It's a logical explanation based on the evidence that we have. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, don't just say it's just a theory like somebody one day sat down and five minutes came up with this harebrained idea and now they're saying, oh, this is a this is a theory and explains everything. No, um, it, it's a bit more than that. But mm-hmm. there are theories. So I think it's actually called the atomic theory. So the idea that there are atoms and that atoms make up all matter and that we can explain how th- how matter interacts if we know about atoms, that's called mm-hmm. the atomic theory. And that is one of the most well-documented, and there's huge amounts of evidence for it. It's still called a theory. So be careful mm-hmm. not to say, well, it's just a theory, but that doesn't mean that all theories are correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's just saying that's what a theory is. It's it's a possible explanation mm-hmm. for what we observe. It's an and a theory is one is something that either cannot or has not yet been been proven to be fact. It's not saying that it can, that it could never be proven mm-hmm. to be fact, but at this point, uh, it isn't. And uh, in the earlier days, like when Darwin was presenting this. Um, it was much more accepted that uh, this has not been proven <laughs> or, or that we we shouldn't maybe just swallow this whole. Whereas I, th- I would think that most people in in modern Western culture would feel, uh, this is a, a broad generalization, but most people who accept evolutionism would feel that it has been more or less proven proven Mm -hmm. to be true. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? I would say so, yeah. So, back to the whole thing of theories being proven true. I think, you know, here we get into kind of a a philosophy of science and how science works, which is kind of technical. But I'm going to kind of push back against what you said there again. um, There's this simplistic view that is often taught, and maybe it's taught because it is simpler and easier to understand, that you start out with a hypothesis, yeah. <laughs> then you go to a theory, and once you get enough evidence, then it becomes a law. And that's just not quite how it actually works. That's mm-hmm. kind of a general idea, but that's not quite accurate. I would say that you you get more evidence and that the theory becomes more and more robust, but I wouldn't say that you necessarily ever mm-hmm. prove it because... Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's different science philosophers. One is called Karl Popper, which I won't get into here. I've been saying that a lot. Maybe I should just stop saying it. But he <laughs> he basically says you can you can only disprove theories. You can't prove them. Mm-hmm. So there was this theory that the 
that the earth or, or uh, that the sun and the stars and the planets all moved around the earth. That was the geocentric view of the universe of the solar system. That has been disproven. So that was a theory that was disproven. Now we have the heliocentric where where everything, you know, for a long time everybody felt that everything went around the sun. Well, now we know that things don't, you know, the entire universe doesn't revolve around the sun. We're actually part of the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is part, you know, is just one of many, many, many galaxies in the in the entire universe. Mm-hmm. And so that theory has been has been modified, has been tweaked over the years to to bring in mm-hmm. uh, to explain more of the things we see in the night sky. So anyway, that was kind of a long and rambling explanation, but yeah, no, and it, and it was good and necessary. And I think maybe. Uh, Jumping back to what you said earlier about, um, I'm not sure if we're going to pronounce it right, but Aristotelian uh, views mm-hmm. like that came out of uh, Ptolemy, Aristotle. At, at that time where there was this great conflict between Galileo and others in, in the scientific and, and even religious community, wasn't it because uh, that those views were almost uh, to the point of being accepted as mm-hmm. law, like mm-hmm. you said, in, in that progression? Mm-hmm. And he was he was essentially attacking what was accepted as law, yep. and and saying no, this is just a theory. Mm-hmm. Here's another one that is actually disproving this yep. other theory. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think, as I understand it, that's why modern science is perhaps slower or even loath to accept things mm-hmm. as laws, <laughs> and just maintaining everything as a theory. Because as you said. That philosopher says theories can only be disproven, not proven. Yeah. Um, so this idea of absolutism, which we might touch on, I don't know, is is uh, a scientist's view is that you can't be absolutely sure about. Well, um, this, I know, there's so much complexity and nuance mm-hmm. to all of these statements, but yeah. uh, nothing can be absolutely proven, and so everything has to stay in this kind of sort of limbo of theory. Yeah. But yeah, there are so. One way I've explained what science, you know, we weren't trying necessarily to explain what science is, but I'll give a brief explanation of my best understanding. So science builds models about the natural world, and a model is something that represents or tries to explain something else. So, for instance, a model of the Earth is a globe. You could also say that a flat map is also a model of the Earth. Now, which one is more accurate? You would say the globe. Um, a map, when you try to take something that is spherical and m- make it fit on a two-dimensional object, mm-hmm. you have to do some stretching and squishing and so forth to make it work. Mm-hmm. And so you could say that a globe is more accurate. Science comes up with models. So the, the whole thing of the atomic model of the atom or the, uh, the model of the atom, you know, what does the atom look like? Mm-hmm. That model has changed multiple times, uh, many times in the last couple thousand years. There was a lot of change in the late from the late eighteen hundreds to the middle of the nineteen hundreds, like from one model to the next. And and mm-hmm. one model explained some things, but then there were some other things that came up. This this one scientist said, "Well, how does this work? Why don't the electrons just spiral down into the nucleus if they're in these orbits around the the nucleus? Why don't they just go into the nucleus?" For various reasons, that should happen. Well, turns out there's a reason why that doesn't happen, and so that had to be added to the next model. And so mm-hmm. these models develop, and I, I kind of think it 
I kind of think about it like where we we learn something, we have this this model, or you could say this theory. A theory and a model, in a sense, are are similar. You could almost use them as synonyms. Mm-hmm. Because a model is not necessarily a physical model. Like we mm-hmm. talk about a model, you think like a model of a volcano, you build a volcano. But um, a lot of these models are not physical models. They're just ideas. Mental models, yeah. And so you you have this model, but then something comes up that doesn't work with the model. And so you like, okay, well, this is puzzling. How do I make this work? So then you, you slightly modify the model. Now it works in that in that example. And you mm-hmm. use that for a little while, and then there's something else you learn. Maybe you have a better instrument that can measure something you couldn't measure before. Well, now your model doesn't work. So let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's adjust it. And so science is always in this process of learning and adjusting. But there are times when there are certain ideas that become fairly well entrenched. So this is a more common example. For a long time, it was believed that ulcers... Like like stomach ulcers were caused by stress, mm-hmm. and there was this this scientist that had done some different studies, and he thought that it was a certain type of bacteria that would get into the gut and would cause these ulcers, and people just made fun of him and said, "Well, no, obviously this isn't true." So what he ended up doing is he ended up actually taking some of those bacteria and eating them, getting them in his stomach, and then he started having ulcers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> which I think is some serious dedication. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of commitment. Yeah. So that is so so now that changed. Now people believe that these this type of bacteria is a very crucial part of what causes stomach ulcers. But mm-hmm. people, you know, until that happened, people just kind of shrugged it off and said, "Well, that's not true." You know, we are as humans, we're very resistant to changing what we believe. We we latch onto something. And we're happy that we have the truth, and so anybody uh, challenges that, and we're going to to just dismiss it, or we'll just make fun of them, or something. The, uh, there's a book called "The Structure of Scientific Revolutions" by Thomas Kuhn, I believe, and I have not read it, but it basically says that for a paradigm or a way of thinking to change in science takes a lot, mm-hmm. and it usually doesn't happen gradually; it usually happens very quickly. And so this this whole idea of natural selection and evolution kind of came on the scene from Darwin, and it took a little while, and there was some resistance, but eventually it was accepted, and there has been evidence that backs up Darwin's theory, mm-hmm. you could say. Uh, so, for instance, there was there was all these all these changes that he could see. We can even go out and study organisms, and we can see them change almost in real time. For instance like antibiotic resistant bacteria mm-hmm, that in right. a sense is that that is natural selection at work uh, in a very real way so that's some evidence for natural selection right mm-hmm. but the thing is that he extrapolated from these finches and these other organisms that he saw and he extrapolated that out to say that this organism can turn into this very different organism given enough time mm-hmm. so that that's a pretty big jump that that's really what we when we talk about the theory of evolution that's really what we're talking about is is that much bigger change mm-hmm. but so i most people or i would say pretty much everybody in the scientific community even those that are very much bible believing christians believe that there is such a thing as organisms changing 
Right. They do believe that natural selection, you know, the fittest surviving, that that, that, that makes sense. Where they differ is then extrapolating that out to say that caused humans to come from, you know, like an ape ancestor that they don't mm-hmm. believe in that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Right. Good. That was a, a long side tangent, but necessary. And I think it, it proves um, <laughs> or reveals something of why there is a conflict between science and religion. And part of it is even comes down to simply understanding what the terms mean. Uh, so a, a good example of that mm-hmm. is this word theory, and another is the word faith. You know, an agnostic scientist is going to mm, interpret faith as being blind ignorance or willful, <laughs> willful ignorance. And perhaps a more religious person is going to say, uh, this is just a theory and get uh, James's blood mm-hmm. flowing really quickly. <laughs> but no, yeah. uh, I think you explained it very well. And I probably used that phrase, just a theory, too, too, maybe too quickly with evolution. I'm thinking of evolution as a whole and some of the big leaps they make in their, in their logic uh, where there's just so much that can't be proven or hasn't been proven or mm-hmm. doesn't, there isn't a physical or natural evidence for whereas some of these other theories that you said are uh, like atomic theory is much more robust maybe that's that was the idea that i was getting at with the Mm -hmm. with the just Mm -hmm. whereas even though from my perspective the theory of evolution is not nearly as robust it's almost given as just as if it were the most robust theory out there because of uh, the worldview that people are wishing to take well, we need to pull this back into our question of <laughs> the history of <laughs> of the conflict. Do you have any more examples specifically, of, or how do I want to say, of specific scientists or stories in the, in the recent history that where people are saying mm-hmm. this is an example of science versus the church, and and you're finding or you have evidence that maybe it wasn't really that, and we've mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. come to this point uh, incorrectly. There, there are some other examples as well, but some uh, there were a couple different books that I was reading, and, and we'll put those in the show notes. Two of the books that I read most were God's Undertaker, which has a subtitle, Has Science Buried God? by John C. Lennox, and then When Science Meets Religion by Ian G. Barber. Um, there's another book called The Soul of Science that I also pulled some information from, but at least two of those books talked about mm-hmm. these two men, Andrew Dixon White and John William Draper. They wrote books about science and religion, and they were titled History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science mm-hmm. and A History of the Warfare of Science and Theology. <laughs> and so you can kind of guess what their books were about. And the, the, those books were, um, I would say they were polemics. Uh, Sean, you want to explain what a polemic is? Oh, my <laughs> I would have to pull it. I could have to pull it up in a dictionary to explain yeah. it. Yeah, no, that's fine. So, so I would say so a polemic is something that has a very clear agenda. It's not trying to necessarily dive to the deep and figure out what the truth is. It has an agenda and it's pushing it very hard. And the agenda was really to discredit religion. This would have been in the late 1800s, like 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. So this would have been uh, four or five decades after Darwin's theory had kind of... I'm trying to think when his book was published. 
uh, for some reason, I think it was 1850, maybe, mm-hmm. in the 1850s. This had been 30, 40, 50 years after after his book. And they very much had the agenda of trying to discredit religion. So this mm-hmm. was where the idea of Galileo being this this man on the search for truth that was persecuted by the church, that's kind of where that, that, that story was somewhat created. And uh, you can even hear versions of that story today in different science documentaries. It was picked up, and eventually this thing that had a clear agenda was eventually started to be repeated as fact. Right. Not as this person's opinion of, of how history was. You know, history history is it, it's not my area of study. I find it interesting. Um, I enjoy history, but history requires interpretation, maybe in some ways more than some other things. And they're very <laughs> right. different perspectives. They're very different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So the development of of the United States and the westward expansion, mm-hmm. depending on whether you're looking at it from the white settlers' point of view or the Native Americans, indigenous peoples' mm-hmm. point of view, very much changes how you view that particular thing in history. Exactly. And these men were looking at things in history from a particular viewpoint and seemed to kind of have it out for religion. Mm-hmm. There's a quote by by Colin Russell, who's a science historian. I think this was out of God's Undertaker. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire quote because it sums it up really well. It says, The common belief that the actual relations between science and religion over the last few centuries have been marked by deep and enduring hostility is not only historically inaccurate, but actually a caricature so grotesque that what needs to be explained is how it could possibly have achieved any degree of respectability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think he sums that up pretty well, of that it's this idea that there's this this inherent conflict between science and religion. There's this hostility is just completely false. There certainly is some conflict, and I want to talk about maybe why there is conflict but that there's this hostility between science and religion is just completely false. It's it's a it's a view of history from a particular perspective that has been repeated over the last hundred years or so to where it, it has almost gained fact. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people say it as it's fact. Yeah, I would have thought of a polemic as a bit of a rebuttal. So there are a lot of famous polemics where two philosophers or even two two men in literature were going back and forth about their views. The dictionary calls it an aggressive attack or an aggressive mm-hmm. refutation of the opinions or principles mm-hmm. of another. And that fits that fits with kind of what what I had in mind. And yep. what mm-hmm. what then these these polemics, these books are are propaganda really for yeah, an individual's uh, worldview and it just so happened that these two men were influential and they had a worldview uh, presented in their polemic and their attack that appealed to a large a large section of society and something that is important in in this whole discussion of of science in this whole discussion of conflict between science and religion even thinking about these particular polemics these particular attacks is that just because a scientist says a thing doesn't make it science (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah exactly i don't know if you could talk about that a little bit 
yeah, if if you know Richard Dawkins is a scientist and there are other scientists as well, I'm probably going to read a few more quotes here. And they are scientists, but just because they say something does not mean that is science. And I think, you know, what is science? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's another discussion. Mm-hmm. Science is science is really a method of discovering the, the natural world. Right. Uh, it's oftentimes portrayed as it's a body of knowledge or a body of facts, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's, a, it's in a sense, it's a method. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people that do science, but that does not mean that they are science, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. And and like you said, uh, there was something that John Lennox said in his book. I'll, I'll probably keep quoting from him a number of times. I thought it was very good. He said, statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then let's go back a little bit and say, so we've kind of, you could say, debunked, which I kind of hate the term debunk, but... <laughs> Anyway, we, we've kind of debunked that there is this inherent conflict between science and religion. So if there is no real conflict, why do we have this idea that there's a conflict? Well, sure. part of it is what we just talked about, that there's been these historians that have kind of had these agendas, and that has been passed down to where it's been basically like truth over the last hundred years. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the real conflict is not between science and religion. It's between the philosophies of materialism and theism. Mm-hmm. So a worldview, yeah. That's right. It really has to do with a worldview. So just a brief recap. It has been like a half an hour or more since we talked about materialism. Yeah. So materialism is the belief that there is nothing that exists other than the material or the physical world. Mm-hmm. And of course, theism is the belief that there are spiritual realities. Right. And... That that thing of materialism, uh, when you when you believe that, so I would say that it's not that science makes somebody believe in materialism. It's almost more like materialism is its own thing, right? That then affects how you view science and how you view the world. That's well stated. So you know these back to the whole thing about statements by scientists are not necessarily statements of science. Scientists are people, and so mm-hmm. they have their own ideas, their own biases, their own beliefs, their mm-hmm. own agendas, mm-hmm. and so those will come through in their statements. They they cannot be a hundred percent unbiased and objective, mm-hmm. and so they they have an opinion. They have an opinion about what this fossil record says, and so that's what they say. And sometimes it's maybe true. Sometimes it's their opinion. Or they they start speaking about philosophy, about something, uh, make statements about uh, materialism. That is not necessarily scientist. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, just because of the authority that scientists have in our modern society, in our Mm -hmm. secular society, Mm -hmm. they're they're almost held up as kind of the high priests of that sort of thing, where, where whenever you look for truth, you go to the scientist to tell you something. And and that really does come from this foundational idea in, you know, scientism where science is the only real source of truth. Everything else is just objective right. belief. Right. And so they oftentimes their statements are given the authority as being true. Mm-hmm. So there's a particular scientist that for whatever reason, does, you know, he's an atheist or an agnostic, does not believe in God, uh, believes in the view of materialism, and he says something. And the the press, the the 
popular culture, they take that as as fact. That's what that's what the high priest of science said, and so we're taking that as fact that there's this conflict or there's this particular thing that conflicts with 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 religion. Mm-hmm. So there's a really this is a longer quote. I don't like reading long quotes, but please bear with me. <laughs> there was a geneticist. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Richard Lewinton. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And this is. This quote, I think, does a good job of explaining how materialism affects this this foundational idea of materialism, which a lot of scientists accept, how that affects how they view the findings of science. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, and uh, listener, please bear with me here. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. It is not the methods and institutions of science that somehow compel us to accept material explanations of the phenomena world, but, on the contrary, we are forced by our primary adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And so where he's talking about claims that go against common sense or that are absurd, mm-hmm. in the book, God's Undertaker, the author gives the example a few different times of um about this idea of allowing a divine foot in the door of, of someone buying a vehicle someone buying a car and the first time they ever saw a car you know this is amazing look under the hood mm-hmm. how is this working and coming to the conclusion that this vehicle like just just evolved into existence let's just use that as an example mm-hmm. Be- because because there is no creator present uh, so we could say Henry Ford is not there beside me. I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't talk to him. Therefore, mm-hmm. he doesn't exist. Well, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. That that that's absurd. Common sense says this amazing vehicle, this amazing piece of technology, was designed, was created. You open the hood. You look look mm-hmm. under there. You put in the key. You get it started. You take take off, and you think this could never have just come to be uh, over even millions of years. It obviously had someone who invented, designed, uh, tweaked, um, made this better. And Richard Richard, uh, Lowenthal, (laughs) whoever he is, is saying that because the scientific community, or or else um, it might be better to say a subset of the scientific community, Mm-hmm. is committed to what I would go as far as to say the religion, um, using that word a bit broadly, of materialism, uh, that mm-hmm. everything needs to be, it can only be seen, touched, experienced. Because they are so committed to that view, they are just blind, or Maybe blind isn't the right word, but they're almost antagonistically opposed to anything that could mm-hmm. explain the gaps in their in their own method. 
Yeah, there, there's another quote that I really like. So Francis Crick, he was one of the scientists who discovered the structure of DNA. So, you know, DNA is this incredible structure that holds all the information for an organism. It's it's very complex. It has huge amounts of information. It has all of these, you could say, fingerprints or hallmarks of something that has been designed. But then he has this quote. He says, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but evolved. <laughs> and it's 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 just incredible that this sort of thing is going on. And so our first response as people that disagree with, with Richard Lewinton and Francis Crick, and we read what they say here, I don't think these quotes were taken out of context. I hope they weren't. I don't like being uncharitable yeah. to people. But John Lennox, at the beginning of his book, said he, he tried not to take things out of context. So I'm, I'm hoping this is in context, and I'm being charitable here. But we read this, and it seems crazy. Like, why would you, why would you like believe these stories? Because you're you're so committed to materialism, mm-hmm. and and then Francis Crick, he he studied this amazing thing that we now you know so many people point to when they're trying to find evidence for a creator. They point to DNA, and he says we must keep in mind that what was not designed but evolved. You have to like constantly tell yourself this car was not designed, it just kind of came together on its own power and, mm-hmm. and turned into a car. And it's easy for us to make fun of these these men or just kind of laugh at them. And we, we've already laughed a little bit, I guess. <laughs> but I have to think about Romans 1, which are some pretty foundational verses. They're very special to me. And starting Romans 1, verse 20 For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Um, That's a verse that is speaking of God's attributes is, is shown in what he has created. And then that last phrase there, so that they are without excuse. We do not, because of that, that evidence, we do not have an excuse. But then go on to verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Mm -hmm. And so, I wonder if, for whatever reason, they have decided that materialism is what they are going to believe, and they must stick to that. And I'm not sure why that is. Some people say it's because they don't want to believe in God, because God would hold them accountable. And that might be the case. I think that there are some scientists that are genuinely, their their hearts are darkened. Mm-hmm. They just don't realize it. And I think we need to be careful not to make fun of them, because there are certain beliefs that I have that I'm quite certain are false. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that they're false. That's the thing. I'm, I'm ignorant. And mm-hmm. so so I think we need to be careful not to make fun of people that say things like this, but at the same time, that certainly gives you a lot of pause mm-hmm. in, in some of those things. And and so back to the whole thing of conflict, it seemed there again, is the conflict actually science and religion or is it materialism and theism? It seems mm-hmm. from these quotes, at least, that a lot of it is they have dedicated themselves to materialism. They won't allow this divine foot in the door, and so they reject 
anything that has to do with religion or the creator, and they come up with explanations that don't require a creator. And there are obviously, well, there's a spectrum of of that antagonism, perhaps, and it goes mm-hmm. from just using materialism as your worldview to base everything on, all the way up to a very, a very antagonistic perspective where. I think you mentioned earlier that some of these philosophers say that the idea of a god is actually pernicious. It's actually harmful to society. Uh-huh. And so they take an overtly antagonistic attack against God. And, and so those are probably, I would say, there are fewer of those people, but maybe they're more antagonistic and and happen to have more of a platform or more of an influence in the mm-hmm. scientific community mm-hmm. at the moment and uh for that reason we have this uh this conflict more evident so you earlier mentioned this idea or uh your preference for using the word naturalism versus materialism so and and the verses that you quoted there talk about that naturalism, materialism, nature is what points us to God. And and you made a very good point of if someone gave you a piece of technology, gave you a vehicle, a car, and said, now you you must keep in mind that this had to have evolved. This couldn't have been made. This couldn't have been designed. That would seem very ludicrous to us. But that's what's happening with science at large, with the subset of scientists who are pushing an antagonistic Mm -hmm. conflict. But uh, we need to talk a little bit about uh, the Christian foundations of science. So you're stating, James, that there is not a conflict between science and religion. And there's actually some evidence that there, uh, we could say, are Christian foundations in science Mm-hmm. And that it's only a very recent thing that science and religion have gone into conflict. And what is actually, it, the terms are wrong and the the whole <laughs> the whole theory or basis is wrong. And we're looking at it being more of a, what is your worldview to start with? And is it materialism? Is it naturalism? Mm-hmm. Or is it theism? Mm-hmm. And, and then where you go from there. Okay, this idea of Christian foundations of science, what, what do we see? Well, for one, we see that nature is good, and we don't think of that as, you know, how would that have anything to do with science? The Greeks tended to believe that what was best was those things that were spiritual, and that the physical, physical material world was kind of corrupted. Mm-hmm. I think that that was that was kind of a false belief that showed up during the early church called Gnosticism. Yeah, that that kind of came from the Greeks, and. God said that his creation was good. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a very good thing. And so it's something that's worth studying because it was created by God. It's good. It's not, we we don't have to sit around and just philosophize about the spiritual world. And because that's what's worth studying, the physical world is good. It's worth studying. So I think that foundation is important. And I will say it's not just a Christian foundation or Christian beliefs. It was more Judeo-Christian. So these sorts of things were present with with the Hebrews mm-hmm. thousand plus years before Christianity. Mm-hmm. So another thing that's really important is that the view that nature is not a god 
so it's there's a lot of people uh, they have this idea of pantheism which pantheism yeah. is the belief that like the trees and the water and their their spirits and that sort of thing so a lot of times people will people will worship the sun they'll worship the trees there's different ancient religions mm-hmm. that um would would worship nature so it's so if you believe that nature was created it's not a god in itself then it's mm-hmm. not something that you need to to venerate it's nothing that you need to worship mm-hmm Instead, it's something that you can you can study um, because it's it's created by something else, and so I think it, it's kind of like how we would not we wouldn't praise a house for how it was built, but we'd rather praise uh, the contractor that built it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then another thing that's important, and these next two are somewhat tied together or very similar, but different books have them as separate. Uh, the creation is unified and coherent. Like it, it all kind of works together and it follows similar laws. And that would make sense if there was a singular creator that designed everything mm-hmm. rather than things just kind of arising randomly, then you would expect it to, to not all work. There's a quote from a book that I read. It says, as the creation of, of a trustworthy God, nature exhibits regularity, dependability and orderliness. It is intelligible and could be studied. It displayed in no, a knowable order. Mm-hmm. So that's an example there. And then there's some others as well, but I'm just going to do one more. The universe follows laws. And we've probably all heard the phrase, the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, the laws of nature tell you you shouldn't drive your car into a, a tree because the law of inertia is going to cause you to hit your windshield. Yep. You know, there are many laws of nature that you know gravity all these different things that we just take for granted the universe follows laws and a lot of those laws are mathematical mm-hmm. very mathematical you can you know some are more complicated than others some are very simple but uh just about everything underlying what we see can be mathematically expressed as as an equation as different things mm-hmm. there's there's an essay by a mathematician called Eugene Wigner and the the title of the essay is The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple quotes that I just want to take from that. The enormous usefulness of mathematics in the natural sciences is something bordering on the mysterious, and there is no rational explanation for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really strange that everywhere we see there is math, or you can use math to illustrate the force of gravity, how gravity pulls an apple toward the ground or how it pulls us toward the ground, mm-hmm. you can express that very precisely in mathematics. And then another quote, it says, we are in a position similar to that of a man who is provided with a bunch of keys and who, having to open several doors in succession, always hit on the right key on the first or second trial. Mm-hmm. To kind of explain that, there's different times where mathematicians have come up with different types of mathematics that didn't really seem to have much of a... Uh, much practical application and it was later that we found that mathematics in nature it's 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 like if you have this key and you're going around and you can actually find like you, you just took this key and you you ground it and you just go around and you stick it in a door randomly and you can open the door mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there is you know uh it it wasn't like we made the math up in a sense we discovered the math um, we discovered that it existed, and then we found evidence of that math in the natural world, mm-hmm. which is just crazy <laughs> to think about. 
So the universe follows laws. So yeah, there are other other ways in which modern science kind of has a foundation in the Judeo-Christian view of the world, but these are just a few of them. And where he says that it's unreasonable, he's saying that when you look at all of the universe, mm-hmm. it is the odds, <laughs> mm-hmm. the odds yeah. that everything would follow the same order it are so astronomical that it's unreasonable. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. That it, it sh- there should be more randomness. There should be more difference. Mm-hmm. There should be more odd things or things mm-hmm. maybe in conflict that don't agree with each other that are coming from different, even we might say different strains or of evolution or something. But we just find the same order, or as you're saying, the same key fits in every every single place that we find and that for Mm -hmm. someone with a theistic worldview makes a lot of sense because yeah Mm -hmm. we hold a faith that there is one source (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's quite incredible you start looking at where math shows up and it shows up everywhere some people say that that math is almost like the the language or the code of the universe Uh uh-huh and it's it's quite fascinating so, talking about the Christian uh, background of science, so modern, you know, what we call modern science arose in the 1500s, 1600s in Europe. And during that time, it was fully Christianized. Now, it was uh, the Catholic Church, although I guess the Protestant Church came in there in the 1500s, 1600s. Mm-hmm. And so, you have a lot of these modern scientists were Christian. And so, we don't know how many of them were actually followers of Christ. Were, were true disciples of Christ. We don't know, but certainly the culture was Christian and there was a very much of a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And that is where modern science kind of arose, was in that in that culture of, it was soaked in Christianity. Right. And so this thing of there being a conflict between science and religion seems a little, I don't know if silly, that's a little bit too dismissive, but uh, it seems a little strange that if there was this conflict between science and religion, that it would arise in this very religious culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were many scientists that were devout, professing Christians. So, for instance, Galileo, we've already mentioned him. Sir Isaac Newton, which was probably the most influential scientist that ever lived, I think, mm-hmm. is probably safe to say. Mm-hmm. He came up with the idea of gravity and came up with mathematical reasons why that worked. He also developed calculus, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a type of math that is extremely important in engineering and in many different ways in modern life. Mm-hmm. Um, Johannes Kepler, who was an astronomer that came up with the idea, or he discovered, that planets orbit in in ellipses, not in circles. There was this, this prevailing idea that, largely because of the Greeks, the Greeks were very much about geometry, and they felt like the world, that the, uh, the celestial world was was perfect, kind of back to the whole idea of the material world being kind of corrupt, but everything outside was was kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. And so the circle, um, the circle was the most perfect shape. And so they, they were sure that, that all these orbits were, were perfect circles. And it turns out they're actually ellipses, which is kind of an oval, yeah, like an oval type shape, which most of the planet's orbits are not... To the naked eye, well, I say to the naked eye, <laughs> they're basically circles, but they're just a little bit oblong, by mm-hmm. just just a little bit. 
um, some more than others. But so he, he discovered that. And he has this quote that I really like. It says, I give you thanks, creator and God, that you have given me this joy in thy creation, and I rejoice in the world of your hands. Mm-hmm. See, I have now completed the work to which I was called. In it, I have used all the talents you have lent to my spirit. So he he saw that he saw that he was using the talents that God had given him to to kind of worship God, to to un, uh, to uncover things about God, and and he was rejoicing in that ability to do that. So he very much was a professing Christian. You don't, yeah. None of those men, you don't really get a sense of uh, this antagonistic conflict that we're we're seeing mm-hmm. now in the twenty first century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what then? There is a conflict now. And we're, we're saying not between science and religion, but more between the worldviews from which we start, mm-hmm. naturalism and theism. So how mm-hmm. then should we, what are different ways that we could relate to this conflict or between science and religion? So I pulled this very much from Ian Barber's book, When Science Meets Religion. And I, I really found it fascinating in that he says there are four main ways that science and religion can interact or four four different views of science and religion interacting. Okay. The first one we've already talked about extensively is conflict. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we've, you know, this is based on highly selective accounts from history. It's been, you could say, maybe debunked as being a true account. However, there are still some that very much hold to this view. I've mentioned Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. He's probably some of the, you know, one of the most extreme or militant. Mm-hmm. There are others that aren't quite that extreme that would still see that. And like you've said, this conflict maybe is there, but it's not between science and religion, but it's between materialism and theism or mm-hmm. naturalism and theism. Right. So conflict, that's that's the first way, and, and we kind of have kind of talked that that's probably not true, and I don't believe as Christians we should view it that way. Another way we can view it is independence, and this is where they talk about completely different things. So science is studying the physical world, religion is studying like human experience and belief and the meaning of life and those sorts of things. And that they're, they're, they're separate. They can just do their own thing over in their own sphere of influence. You do you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and one thing I found uh, helpful is it says science asks how questions about how the world works, while religion asks why questions about the existence of the universe, the, you know, why life arose and the purpose of man's life. So science asks how questions, religion asks why questions. I think I've I've heard it also called this idea of non-overlapping magisteria. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't quite know what that all means, but basically that they just they do their own things separately. They don't they don't overlap. So there mm-hmm. there are some scientists that would say they they're religious, they believe in God, but when they're scientists they have the worldview of materialism, and they uh, believe in the theory of evolution, and they they're able to somehow maybe separate those things into two independent spheres. Mm-hmm. So that is that's independence. Yeah, that idea of uh, non-overlapping magisteria. I've bumped up against that idea before, and it just means that you have two different kingdoms, two different majesties that. Mm-hmm. that are not at war. They're just like separate in their different pockets. It's like someone who is both uh, 
both into physics and into poetry. <laughs> uh, their non-overlapping magisteria means that we don't need to have an argument about the the sciences and the humanities, but I can, uh, when I'm with my poetry club, I can enjoy feeling and emotion and, and sub- subjectivity. And when I'm with my uh, physics buddies, then I'm all about math and they don't need to be antagonistic. Yeah, I think that's very helpful to kind of understand what those what those things mean. I I never thought about uh, you know the magisteria meaning different kingdoms, but yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, the next way that Ian Barber says that we can view the relationship between science and religion is dialogue, and dialogue, it, you know, just like it says, they're able to talk to each other. They're not completely separate. They mm-hmm. actually talk a little bit. Mm-hmm. So this kind of emphasizes kind of the similarities between science and religion, whereas independence kind of emphasizes the differences. Right. And part of this, part of the reason why this is, why this happens is because science sometimes raises questions that it can't answer. Mm -hmm. And religion is able to answer some of those questions. Uh, Some of those questions might be, for instance, we see that the universe is is orderly and can be understood. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Why is there something rather than nothing? How did life arrive from non-life? Right. And, you know, what is the meaning of life? Why, you know, why do we exist? Some of those questions and science can ask those questions, but it isn't really equipped to answer those questions. Although you do have scientists that in a sense do try to, from their materialistic viewpoint, try to answer those questions in their own way. But uh, a lot of times that's incapable of doing that. Another thing is religion and belief can give guidance to ethics in science. Mm-hmm. So should we clone humans? What could maybe be the impact on humans by certain scientific developments? Maybe we should pull back from certain types of scientific advances like nuclear energy, AI. The list can go on and on. Mm-hmm. Science cannot necessarily give a lot of direction there, but religion can can give you some of that ethical backbone mm-hmm. to help you make decisions about whether we should be cloning humans. Sure. Um, you know, it's very common, it's very common to clone animals, but cloning humans at least has been very much of a of a taboo thing and I mean I don't know, it it's possibly happened, but certainly it's not certainly not a widespread thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, then the last one here that Ian Barber mentions is integration. And that's really where they are kind of fused together. They're not just talking to each other. They're not independent, completely disconnected. They are kind of fused into one or are kind of pulled together. And he says there are three different ways that you can do that. The first one is natural theology. And natural theology is something we're probably already familiar with. We just don't call it this. Mm-hmm. And this is this is that... It claims that the existence of God can be inferred or deduced from evidence of design in nature. So we've mm-hmm. talked about DNA, for instance. There's other, there's many other evidences as well, and that, in a sense, is natural theology. That kind of became a fairly big thing in kind of the 1800s, I believe, especially mm-hmm. when some of these more secular, materialistic views started becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Christian scientists and theologians really started leaning pretty heavily on natural theology, mm-hmm. and, and we have a lot of that to this day. So natural theology would be the Ken Ham 
sort of approach to Christian science, isn't that right? Where he, he says, well, of course, I think Ken Ham can be a bit antagonistic, but <laughs> he, he says smart people will just come to the conclusion that there was a designer just by looking at, at creation and so on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, of course, we've talked about how that even very smart people can look at this design and yeah. see, uh, for various reasons, either make themselves believe that it wasn't designed or right. just accept the common, commonly, you know, the theory of evolution and other widely accepted ideas. So Sure. Okay. Uh, the next one here in integration is the theology of nature. And uh, this is where it gets a little bit out of my comfort zone as far as, <laughs> as, far as philosophy and, and theology, but... It says that the source of theology is mostly outside of science, but that scientific theories can affect certain doctrines, such as the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of human nature. Mm-hmm. So, so here, you know, before it was more science is supporting what we already believe about the existence of God. Theology of nature is saying we, we hold these particular doctrines but science can actually speak to those and maybe change those. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a sense you could maybe say the whole thing of, you know, the church used to believe that the earth was the center of the universe. Now we don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's an example of theology of nature, mm-hmm. possibly. I don't know that that would necessarily affect any doctrines, though. Yeah, I, I think that theology of nature, something that uh, we see today is carbon dating and how that is trying to speak to the doctrine of a literal seven-day creation and Mm -hmm. uh, the acceptance of the earth being around 6,000 years old rather than many thousands or or millions of years. And Mm -hmm. so theology of nature says uh, we, we need to look at carbon dating, which seems to indicate that this rock is three million years old Mm -hmm. and now go to the Bible and figure out a way to kind of shoehorn the, the creation story Mm -hmm. into this idea of uh, accepting a three million year old rock. Yeah. So a couple things, first of all, carbon dating cannot date rocks. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's true. That's true. (laughs) So that is called, radioisotope dating yeah. a lot of times they use uranium uranium and some other elements as well to yep. uh, to date rocks yep good catch but yeah there there are some yeah there are some things there that we can't really explain um we don't quite understand why these rocks appear to be as old as they are mm-hmm. and so a lot of times what will happen is they'll say okay well science says this rock is a bazillion years old sure and <laughs> Uh, a literal reading of the Bible says the earth is, there's actually some differences in genealogies that kind mm-hmm. of affect things, but let's say six thousand, roughly 6,000 years old. Sure. So that doesn't match up. So what do we do? Do we adjust, we say, well, the science isn't right, or do we adjust what we believe about the Bible? And right. so there's some people that say, you know what, um, doesn't matter what science says, the Bible is true, and so we have to go with that. There are other people that say, well, we believe the Bible is true, so what might be the issue is that our interpretation of the Bible yeah. is wrong. And right. so they maybe interpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is up through about um, the flood, basically, 
mm-hmm. um, they interpret that as being more allegorical or poetic, symbolic. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or they'll sometimes say, well, in, in those seven days of creation, there was maybe they weren't seven literal days. Maybe there were some longer periods of time in there. Mm-hmm. There were longer than seven days. So, yeah, that, that yeah, that's a good example. I'm glad you brought it up that a theology of nature allows science to speak to theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the last one here is systemic synthesis. And I'm not quite I'm not totally sure what the difference is between theology of nature and systemic synthesis. I would have to go back to the book and read again. But in this case, both science and religion kind of contribute to the development of the belief system. In a sense, they're almost put on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, I think Ian Barber, that's probably where he comes out, so mm-hmm. he would not really come out the way that you or I would. Yeah. The way I understood it is that in these others, the like there's a trump card, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> the Bible can trump science or science can trump religion mm-hmm. and in systemic synthesis it's there there is no trump card they're both the same and like if science says this we'll go that way if the bible says that we'll go that way but mm-hmm. one is not necessarily informing the other perhaps mm-hmm. whereas uh, yeah like you said i wouldn't be comfortable with that i i would want to have <laughs> i would want to hold the trump card of like god's word needs to hold precedence needs to have superiority yes yeah i think that yeah i agree there so we have these four different ways we have we have conflict which i think we can probably all agree is is not the way we should be viewing science and religion we we have independence dialogue and integration and so the question is how do we how do we go from here how do we view science and religion, especially when especially when we have science that doesn't seem to line up with what we believe in the yeah. Bible? Yeah. It, it is difficult. It's not it's not an easy thing to do. Um there are different questions that we have a hard time explaining. Mm-hmm. Why are rocks as old as they are? How can we see you know the James Webb Space Telescope is seeing light from galaxies that are like thirteen billion light years away, which means right. it's gonna take thirteen billion years for the light to get here. Mm-hmm. How does that work in a universe that's six thousand years old? Mm-hmm. Those are questions I don't know that we'll ever find the answers to, <laughs> but we need to somehow navigate and figure out what we what we think there. Sure. And there's there's people there's people that have different ideas on on how on how you can have a six thousand year old universe and see galaxies thirteen billion light years away mm-hmm. that is beyond the scope of this episode, but. Back to the question, how you know, how should we view these two areas? And it seems like we should spend most of our time kind of in the areas of dialogue and integration. Sorry, I'm I'm seeing your notes here <laughs> yeah. that I did not see before. So anyway. Yeah, so it seems like we should spend most of the time in the areas of dialogue and integration that Ian Barber outlined, not in conflict or independence. And I think the reason is is because you know, for one, we don't believe that there is this inherent conflict between science and religion. Yes, yeah. between materialism and theism. Mm-hmm. Um, so we shouldn't view them as being in conflict. I feel that we we're going to lose a lot if we, as as people of faith, if we believe that science is in conflict against faith, and so we just decide we don't want to have anything to do with it. There's a lot that we're losing. In other words, mm-hmm. that Romans one verse twenty 
there's a lot of that evidences of the creator that we're just not going to see because we're not willing to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Then I also think independence is dangerous because although you could say science and religion do fill different roles, I don't think they can quite be fully separated mm-hmm. where you can say religion does its thing over here and science does its thing over here. Mm-hmm. They do kind of need to speak to each other. And I think that science would have a certain maybe hollowness or lack of richness maybe if religion can't speak to it mm-hmm. as far as what's the meaning of the universe. If if you look at the universe and we're this tiny little planet, this tiny little dot of life, and everything around us is just cold darkness and rocks and gases and just nothingness, they can be pretty overwhelming and mm-hmm. a little depressing sometimes that we're you know, we're alone in the universe. But <laughs> right. if we do have religion, we can see the vastness of the creation and see it as a manifestation of God's power and his majesty and, and what he can do. That's very different. And so I think I think it's good for them to kind of have this dialogue about that. Yeah, some responses to to that. I agree that conflict is not not the answer. And Maybe that should be something of an obvious position for a religious person to take, particularly, I mean, we're talking about Christians, mm-hmm. where uh, it should be the foundation of our of the Christian faith that we avoid conflict because of the teachings of Jesus that are very, very plain. Mm-hmm. And so that leads us away from conflict to dialogue, integration. and but but at the same time, I cringe to see the way that some Christians, so-called, are trying to integrate science and and religion, thinking about debates by well-known persons like Ken Ham, where it doesn't really go with what we find in the Bible, in that we're not here, Christians are not social activists. Mm -hmm. We're not looking to make the world a utopia. We're looking to uh, prepare people for the next world by living a particular life in this world yes but not that we're we have the goal or the even the hope that all world governments or all scientists will be changed if we can only forcefully integrate the two so i think we should be careful about that mm-hmm. recognizing that our our paradigm is different we work through the Holy Spirit to share the good news about Jesus, who is the answer to all things in life, and that has to be first. That science is not our ap- apologetic for convincing people to be Christian, but it's mm-hmm. that that the Bible and the work of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual realities, are actually our apologetics. And and I would say, happily to those who have open eyes. You talked about those with darkened hearts. But for us, science is not in conflict with a faith in the Creator, and so we can just rejoice in in the inclusion of both. Mm -hmm. Going then to what you said about independence and its dangers, I think about this idea of Sunday Christians. Mm -hmm. So it's very much of a separation of church and state, but it's a separation of Sunday and Monday, Mm -hmm. uh, a separation of, of, of church and work. And that does not fit with a biblical view of, of Christianity. And so I see 
I see independence as a false dichotomy. It, it's unnecessary that they be separate, mm-hmm. and it's actually harmful that they be separate. It doesn't go with a fully biblical worldview. And, uh, and, and thinking about from the science perspective, as I understand science, pure, pure science maybe, <laughs> doesn't reject facts. It doesn't reject an area of study just because one would prefer not to be bothered by it or one would prefer not to take into consideration. But pure science, I don't know if that's a good term, demands the inclusion of all evidence. And so in that sense, they can't be separate uh, just by definition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Okay, well, the next one here is, as I mentioned, we should probably spend... As we think about the relationship between science and religion, we should maybe spend more of our time in dialogue and integration. And so I'll try to explain a little bit what I mean about that. Sean has already said a few things. And so this is simply where we recognize that religion does have something to say about the questions that science raises. Mm -hmm. Where did life come from? Why does the universe exist? How is the physical world intelligible? You know, the, uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Why is that the case? Why is mathematics the language of the universe? Why is it not just chaos? Mm-hmm. Religion can tell us quite a bit about those those particular things. And I also think it's important where I've already mentioned earlier about morality. Science does not give us a basis for morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's maybe some that say that it does, but I'm not totally convinced. Mm-hmm. I say this not being an, you know, an ethicist or an expert in these areas. So it's just from my perspective, but... Mm-hmm. So I, I believe dialogue is important. But now we move on to integration and wh- how should we integrate science and religion? And we've talked a little bit about this already, so I don't want to rehash too much because we've already given some of our perspectives earlier when I was outlining Ian Barber's four mm-hmm. different ways. But, you know, natural theology, I think, is is a very important way to view science and religion. We can see evidences for the creator all around us. I mean, you can go in your backyard, uh, look down on the ground and pick up a blade of grass. And inside that blade of grass are little chemical factories that are taking energy from the sun. And I won't even get into the sun and all the interesting things there, mm-hmm. but it's taking energy from the sun and turning that into, into glucose and starches and different, different things like that. There's little, you know, even within that simple blade of grass, there are little chemical factories that are just churning away all day long and even during the night doing different things. That's just, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can go out and pick a flower and look at the flower and the parts and smell it. And you can you can tell that God is a God of, of beauty. He wants things to be beautiful. I really wonder what what the Garden of Eden was like. If yeah. if our current fallen world is this beautiful, what would the Garden of Eden be like? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and of course, back to Romans one twenty, you know, viewing science in this way allows us to kind of stand in awe at the power and creativity of God. And a scientist who is using a natural naturalist or materialistic worldview is going to say, you're seeing God in these things because you want to see God in these things. And in fact, that is, maybe there there's some nuance lost there, but it is in fact true. Uh, we do want to see God in it. Uh, we have faith that this is an accurate, actual way to believe. But because we want to see God in it, we can. And if we don't mm-hmm. want to, then it makes it uh, impossible 
and unreasonable like the the one speaker said mm-hmm. so uh we've made it this far uh a long episode i was as we were going along through the conversation looking for places that i might be able to make edits or cuts and i don't think there are very many so this is just going to be <laughs> a long episode <laughs> we warned yeah. you it was but i really enjoyed it it's been a great study for me i appreciate the work that you put into it it james sure we can have some maybe some closing statements uh try to wrap up or give a summary for some of the main points here but i am also looking forward to i just want to say before we get out of here today i i really would like to hear from people did you learn anything uh is there anything that we said that was inaccurate do you have hold a different perspective as a religious person or a scientific person and if we can have any feedback before we get to our next episode, that would be really helpful to uh, to try to mm-hmm. include some of that in 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 our next conversation or the next uh, step to this conversation. But James, how would you kind of uh, wrap this up or, or give a summary of these main points? We kind of started this episode and this question of how do science and faith science and religion, what is the relationship there, and what about the supposed conflict? I don't remember the exact question, but I think that was roughly what it was. And I think we probably gave an episode that's quite a bit different than what the <laughs> person that asked the question was expecting. I'm sure I that's think maybe true. <laughs> the, yeah, so I'm guessing maybe the next episode is going to, we kind of laid the philosophical foundations and hopefully have shown that there is not this inherent conflict. But... Yeah, I hope we have shown that, that there is not a conflict, that there is a conflict between the worldviews mm-hmm. of, of materialism and theism that are held by held by scientists and believers, but it's not a conflict between science and religion itself. Mm-hmm. That, in, in fact, science has been done by professing Christians for many, many hundreds of years, and it's a fairly recent phenomenon of this mm-hmm. thing of conflict, and some of it has been very much overblown or taken out of context to make it to, to kind of increase this idea of this conflict or warfare between science and religion. And that even that in fact that science is actually built on a Judeo Christian worldview. It's not science is another thing. There again, it's it's not a conflict. It's it's actually built on that worldview. Mm-hmm. So we we kind of tried to give you an explanation in this last section as far as like where do we go from here? And I hope we've given some direction there. I'm not sure how clear it's been because there's so many, many things to cover. But science science can tell us a lot about God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to be careful when we get into the whole thing of like the theology of nature because the findings of nature are built on top of a materialistic worldview oftentimes. And so they can exclude God. They can exclude divine revelation like the Bible from, from the explanation. But there's certainly where there's certainly places where the findings of science can affect us and should affect maybe the way we view the world. But mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm hoping that this discussion wasn't too deep and philosophical, and you can actually take something <laughs> away from it. Yeah, I wanted to add a few things um, that I took out of the out of the discussion, uh, thinking about the conflict. Uh, one thing I pulled out was that the so the so called science scientists that are hostile to religion like i said it's a, it's a subset of 
of scientists. It's a growing subset. Maybe it's a majority. I don't know. But that whole idea, the more antagonistic perspective, has itself characteristics of religion. And so it's almost like mm-hmm. religion arguing against religion. Think yeah. about how, you know how much blind faith they have to to exercise in order to accept their positions. The evangelists that they have who are uh, writing these polemics, the disciples that they follow who just refuse to hear anything other than what their 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 masters say, and so it can be a little bit. I'm not sure. Humorous is not the right word, but the similarities between that that hostile view of of a subset of science and and the religion mm-hmm. that they're actually attacking so you almost can't call it science uh, i mean you shouldn't by definition but more just a preferred worldview like we've said because mm-hmm. a, a true pure science would not start with an assumed belief that all other facts have to bow to that assumed belief but actually uh, begin looking for or be, begin at a place and look for a, a conclusion mm-hmm. And a, a science that allows for the logical conclusion of a designer can give a reasonable answer for all areas of life. So we touched on briefly things like emotion, relationships, ethics, re- beauty. And in our worldview, in my worldview, these things should be, in a sense, provable. Maybe not mathematically measurable. Uh, what is the mm-hmm. mathematics of love? But provable and, and religion, particularly a faith in God, and the Bible help us prove those things. So unless our, our, our science is willing to conclude that the logical gaps in our conclusions in science, you know, the things that we can't explain, like you said, James, if science is willing to conclude that that points to a designer and creator whom we haven't met yet, I think we have probably a better understanding of our better view of what science should be mm-hmm. what am i saying there like <laughs> there we i don't know it's just like i think about children maybe in in like you have a bunch of children who are looking at a thing they've never seen before or or talking about a concept they've never understood before and you have experts in the room on that given thing or, or topic the the expert is going to chuckle to himself about you know, look at they're they're using their mind, they're using their hands, they're using their senses to try to discover this thing, but they just do not understand what I intended it for or or the perspective that I have. And I feel like we humans are a bit the children in 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 God's world, um, which is a very <laughs> very fitting mm-hmm. metaphor, where. We just can't know what we don't know. We can't understand what we don't understand. We don't. We can't understand why there's a, a star 13 million light years away or whatever. And God's like, ah, if I could only tell them <laughs> or if I could only explain to them how this is working, it would make perfect sense yeah. to them. Mm-hmm. And so we're kind of here bumbling around in our playground, uh, making our <laughs> our big claims and uh, God is maybe chuckling on the side. I don't know. So, but in in that sense, faith for me is the logical conclusion, and I, I think that we should not feel ashamed that we need faith. Like we mm-hmm. shouldn't feel embarrassed that we need faith to explain some of our uh, ignorance or some of the mm-hmm. difficult things of life. To me, it's just a logical conclusion that because I didn't create the world, 
I'm not going to know everything about it. And so I need to have faith in, in the one who did. Yeah, so I'm not sure what you thought you were going to get out of this episode when you started listening, but I just hope that <laughs> you've seen that science is is something that is beautiful and can point us toward a creator. You know, every single day we can see the complexity, power, and majesty of creation if we just look for it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I would be interested in your feedback, not just on any mistakes we might have made, but also has this has you know I'm I'm not necessarily expecting we're to change anybody's minds, but has this episode changed your mind or opened your eyes to anything? What in this episode was particularly new or some new idea you never thought about? Has it? Do you think it's going to change the way you view science and you view creation going forward? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have ambitious um, plans uh, that this will actually happen, but maybe a little bit for a couple people. Would be nice. Yeah, I've, I've very much thoroughly enjoyed preparing for this. There's a few books that I haven't finished reading. I think I might just continue yeah. <laughs> reading and finish them up. Anyway, we will put a few of those books in the show notes. So I've already mentioned God's Undertaker by John C. Lennox, uh, When Science Meets Religion by Ian Barber, The Soul of Science, and that's, I can't remember who wrote that. And then there's one or two others that I've read kind of preparing for this. There's one particularly interesting book by Anthony Flew, who was a very prominent atheist uh, philosopher who eventually, I don't know that he would say he's a Christian, but he believes in a creator now because of the evidences of science. Go ahead and put that in the show notes. Also, a number of months ago, I was asked to write an article, and so I wrote that article. It was about science and science and faith and conflict, whether they were or not. And some of some of my research for that article made its way into this episode. <laughs> and so if you want kind of a, a bite-sized um, version of this episode, you can read that article. I'll put it on my blog. There'll be a link to that in the show notes. I did have to leave a lot of nuance out, so keep that in <laughs> yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. If you want the full-fledged version, you have to listen to the whole episode here, which I guess if you've gotten to the end, you've listened to it anyway. But. <laughs> <laughs> we assume so. Thanks a lot, James. I appreciate the effort you put into to making this episode what it was, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. See you later. Ciao.